Thank you, Zach. Good morning. Before I begin teaching, I want to um, just preview some things that are um, in our immediate future. Last Sunday, we in, we're in a series of lessons from the Gospel of John, and <clears throat> last week we began chapter 6 and saw the greatest miracle besides the resurrection that is recorded in the New Testament, the feeding of 5,000, but really we should say feeding 5,000 men, probably fifteen to 20,000 people total. Incredible story. It sets the stage for the rest of John chapter 6, which is about Jesus, who is the bread of life. We know that in the Old Testament that, um, that the name of God, the personal name of God is Yahweh, which comes from a Hebrew verb of being, and so it's translated, I am. And it means a lot of things. I am who I am. I am who I was. I am who I will be. But it's a, it's a word, a name that is uniquely assigned to God. In the Gospel of John, there are seven places where Jesus makes I am statements. And he does that consciously. He does that to connect himself in the minds of his listeners with, uh, with Yahweh, with the, with the Father God. And so the rest of John chapter 6 is the first of those seven statements. He's going to tell us here, playing off of, of the feeding of the 5,000, he's going to tell us in these verses, I am the bread of life. The rest of John chapter 6 is, is related to this idea, I am the bread of life. And so we're going to be in John 6 for the next three Sundays, today and, and two, two more Sundays as we, as we explore this bread of life. Today he's going to offer the bread. Next week he will explain it in greater detail. And the third week he will be rejected because of it. And a crowd of 20,000 people who were following Jesus will dwindle down to a handful because, to coin a Star Wars phrase, this is not the Messiah you're looking for. The last Sunday of March, after we finish John chapter 6, I'm going to interrupt this series uh, just for one week. And on, on March the 27th, I want to tell you about something because I... I really would hate for you to miss it because you didn't know about it. On March the 27th, I'm going to um, share uh, the direction that God is, is leading us uh, related to the expansion of our campus, uh, well, the expansion of, of our complex on our campus. Um, I, don't know what, I don't know what today's attendance will be, but I know that we have been over a thousand people in worship two of the last three Sundays. Uh, we've been over, we've been in the 990s as an average now for some time. Um, God is really, uh, has put it on, on my heart and, and of the pastors and trustees that it is time to take the next step and expand uh, the space that we have available he continues to uh, bring growth, and we need to continue to uh, make space. And so on March the 27th, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach a lesson and explain why I believe this is the, the biblical and right thing to do, why, how I think God is leading us. 
but I'm also going to unveil design plans and, and pictures for you to be able to see and, and look at and, and study. Uh, and so I don't want you to miss that because that's going to be an exciting day. That's the last Sunday of the month, so our children will join us. It'll be family worship day, which means it's going to be really crowded in here. Uh, but that's kind of the point. Um, we need to, to do something to accommodate. So uh, March the 27th, I believe, is going to be a really exciting day. And I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of unveiling uh, some of those plans and let you see how, how God is uh, directing us to really impact every, uh, every ministry area uh, of our church with, uh, with this new expansion. And, uh, and I want to lay out a biblical case of, um, of why this is the right thing for us to do. So after that, we'll be into April and we will turn our attention to Easter. And so we have some really exciting things in the weeks ahead. But let's be in John chapter 6 this morning. Jesus fed the 5,000, then he walked on the water in the night to come to the disciples on their, on their boat. And we're going to pick up the story the next morning. <clears throat> when, when Diane and I were in college, we were very close to uh, our, our, the pastor of the church that we were a part of in, at that time in our life. In fact, he, um, he actually performed our wedding ceremony. But we were close to, to their family, and we often babysat their three children and, and often had meals at their house. And I'll never forget one, one particular meal that we shared in their home. And we're all seated around the table, and the pastor's wife comes out of the kitchen, and she is carrying a still warm loaf of homemade bread. And she sets it there on the table, and to this day, I have lost the, the entire menu of that evening's meal, but I remember the bread. And so we, we offer grace, say a prayer for the meal, and, and as we're all starting to serve ourselves, uh, I think it was the middle child that leaned over and whispered in mom's ear, and she said, that's fine, go get it. So she hops up and runs to the kitchen, and you know, there's probably a quizzical look on our face, and, and she just sort of rolls her eyes, and she said, the kids don't want the bread that I make. They want real bread. <laughs> what they wanted was store-bought bread that was pre-cut, and so here they came, you know, trotting out of the kitchen with the real bread. And while I don't remember the menu that night, I, I, that's always been a life lesson for me. It's a shame to substitute the mass produced for the original. That's what we're going to find in John chapter 6. Jesus teaches an entire day. <clears throat> he runs late. So he provides miraculously a meal of bread and fish for this massive crowd. The day wraps up and <clears throat> the disciples get in a boat and begin to travel across the water to a town called Capernaum. Jesus makes his way to a private retreat where he prays for a time, then walks on the water to meet them on the boat and, and carries the ship miraculously uh, to land. That next morning, the crowd wakes up and they can account for all of the boats that are on the shoreline. They know that Jesus didn't get into the boat with the disciples. All the other boats are accounted for, and yet Jesus is nowhere to be found. <clears throat> and so they, 
they hop in their boats and make their way to Capernaum. They probably heard one of the disciples mention that that was their next destination. And they find Jesus in Capernaum. They find him actually in the synagogue. Now, we don't know that until we get to verse 59 of this chapter. But it wasn't a, probably wasn't a Sabbath day, but, but the synagogue would have meetings uh, on about three days throughout the week. That was typical in that day and time for a Jewish synagogue. And Jesus had gone to the synagogue in Capernaum, and the crowd finds him there after looking everywhere. And they, and they begin a conversation that on their side is really kind of embarrassing. Jesus, with incredible patience, with this crowd of people who just won't get it, with incredible patience, he engages them and begins to teach them about who he is and about precisely what it is that he's offering. Not what they think, but something better than they can imagine. And over the course of this chapter, we'll see the give and take in the synagogue that day. That was not unusual in that time. And Jesus, the back and forth with these who have followed him, as he presents himself as the bread of life. They were full. They ate to satisfaction the day before, but they wake up the next morning and they're hungry. That's the thing about an appetite. There's always another one coming along the, the, the path. They wake up and they're hungry, and so they look for Jesus. I mean, he did it once. Maybe he can do it again. So when they don't find him, they make their way to Capernaum, and they have a conversation, but it's not the one they thought they were going to have. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, I've called this first point, looking for Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Verse 22, the next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not gotten into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had departed alone. Other small boats came from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, here's the thing. They get to Jesus... This is a man who's taught them the most incredible truths the day before and then sort of sealed the day by providing a miracle of incredible scope that was intended to draw their attention to him. The important thing of the day was not the bread and the fish. The important thing of the day was, who is this man, Jesus? They've come the next day. They find him in Capernaum. We're going to get around to the discussion of food because that's what they're looking for, another free meal. But they start with, of all the trivial matters that they could say, when did you get here? They were confused by his absence. They were determined to find another free meal. So they finally come to Jesus. They discover him in the synagogue in Capernaum. They don't have any penetrating theological questions. They don't have, there's nobody that says, hey, one thing I didn't understand yesterday, could you explain something else to me? There's nothing there. They only had silly curiosity about another possible miracle. 
Jesus was in Capernaum, and they couldn't explain how he got there. Maybe there's a good story here. Maybe there's another miracle. One of the things that people say in our generation, they think it's a criticism of of Christianity as as a a true belief system. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible's full of miracles. How How come there are no miracles around here? How come we don't see any miracles today? Well, the first answer to that question is there are miracles everywhere. You just have to have eyes that can see them. But the second answer to that question is that miracle, the experience of miracles breeds a craving for more miracles. What we need to understand about Jesus is he's not a carny trick. He's not a traveling salesman who, who puts on a show to draw a crowd. He called these miracles all the way through the Gospel of John. He keeps calling them signs because the miracles themselves don't really matter except as they turn your attention to Jesus. Who is this man that does these things? And yet he's doing miracles in front of a crowd who can't ever get past the event of the miracle itself. They're captivated. They're fascinated. And they want more. Rabbi, how how did you get here? When did you get here? What a stupid question. Of everything that he'd said the day before, that's the thing that's on the top of their brain? These people were more concerned about their stomachs than they were about their souls. Frankly, 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. We live in a culture that doesn't want to come to Jesus because we're desperate sinners who need to be redeemed because we're going to have to pay the penalty for our sin, we come to Jesus because we've been told he's a great self-help guru. He'll get you what you want. He'll get you down the road, and and you'll be able to have the things that you desire. He's he's an ATM. He, he, He just churns out. You punch the right buttons, and he churns out what you want. Jesus is going to talk. Now, it's always a bad sentence when, I, when you start by saying, well, if I was Jesus, because that would be a bad thing. <laughs> but if I was Jesus, I'd have kicked that crowd to the curb. Really? After yesterday, you come in here with stupid questions. This is what's on your mind. You're just fishing for another meal. See what I did there? <laughs> but Jesus, with incredible patience begins to explain the sign that they missed. And he's going to do it speaking about bread because this is apparently the kind of terms they understand. Jesus doesn't answer uh, the question they ask. He goes right to the heart of the matter. I've called it trendy motives. He's not going to address the trivial question, but he's going to pursue the conversation at a much deeper level. They wanted chronology. He explains motive. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly. Now, you're going to see this several times in this chapter. Uh, John records Jesus saying this because whether your Bible says truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, it's all the translation of the same Greek words, and it's a, it's a verbal clue that the next words out of my mouth are incredibly important. So pay attention. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate some of the loaves and were filled. 
He says, I understand what's going on here. You didn't see the miracle as a sign pushing you to me. You just had a good meal and your brain never got farther than your stomach's satisfaction. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God? Now, here's the thing about, about this crowd. They've come to Jesus, and they, they're, they're hungry for another meal, and Jesus, playing off the, the idea of food, he says, listen, you've got to put your mind at a different level. Don't work for food that perishes, that spoils, food that goes bad. Instead, find the food that lasts for eternal life, the food that God meant for you to receive when he sent me to you. Now, here's the problem. Jesus and the crowd, they're using the same vocabulary words, but they're not using the same meanings. When he says bread, they hear oh, a crusty substance that you, that, that you use to make a sandwich. When he says bread, he's talking about something that God gives you that brings life. Not, I mean, if you're starving and somebody gives you a piece of bread, that brings life in the sense that it sustains you for a little while longer. But he's talking about what, what, what God gives to people who are spiritually dead. And that sustenance doesn't just sort of get them over the next speed bump. It transforms them and gives them life. They're hearing his words from the standpoint of a mindset that's locked into two things. A physical understanding of, of, of the language and a works righteousness approach to spiritual things. Now, let me explain what I mean. When they hear Jesus say bread, they are picturing the kind of bread that you tear off of a loaf. It's the same thing that happened in John chapter 4 when Jesus, remember, he met the Samaritan woman at the well and he said, you need living water and you'll never be thirsty again. And what did she say? She goes, where do I get this living water? Because she's thinking, I won't ever have to come out in the heat of the day to this well to draw water again. I'll just have water that springs up that's always there. But she's hearing him speak about material water when he's speaking about something that, that refreshes you and brings life to you. It's the same thing happening here. He's talking about spiritual sustenance. They're hearing physical sustenance. Here's the second problem. They're so locked into uh, what the Jewish system had become that they're thinking that faith is about a transaction with God. So no, notice how they ask the question. Jesus is talking to them. They think he's offering bread that will never go bad. And they say, that's a pretty good deal. We want some of that. So they say, what are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God. Now, what they mean by that, they don't mean the works that God does. They mean works for God. In other words, what do we have to do to earn the, the blessing, the, the bread that you're talking about? That's why they use the plural. Because they were used to a system 
where you had to jump through certain hoops, you had to do certain things, but they misunderstood the idea that if you did those right things, that 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 would make you acceptable to God. Listen, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. The most common American answer to a question about eternity. If I say, you know, what if you have to stand before God, which you do have to, what, what, what happens when you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? The, the standard American answer is this. Well, yeah, I call it the balance answer. Well, I know I've done some bad things in my life, but I've done more good things than bad things. We have this idea that that eternity, that salvation is a kind of transaction. And if I do more good than bad, then God goes, yep, you're right. The good outweighs the bad, so come on in. Now, we don't ever say things like this. We don't say them out loud, but I promise you we think them. Things like, why do I need to go to church? I'm really a pretty decent guy. I mean, I'm not only... I not only have the good outweigh the bad in me, but honestly, I'm better than most of the people I know. Now, we don't ever say that out loud, but we sure think it. Well, let me tell you, here's the problem with that. You can always come out with a favorable evaluation if you're careful who you stand next to. You know? I, I, try, I try and stand next to fat people. Because <laughs> then people go, look at that slim pastor. He's... If you're careful who the comparison is with on any subject, you can arrange to come out looking pretty good. But here's the, here's the reality of it. When it comes to standing before God in heaven... And he says, why should I let you in? And you go, well, because I've got a lot going for me. I'm, I'm really a much better person. There's more good in me than there is bad. And he's going to go, okay, well, come stand right over here. Because I, I want you to stand next to Jesus. Because that's how I evaluate. Well, guess what? We just suck eggs in that comparison. The people that Jesus was talking to... They were thinking materialistically, but they were also thinking about what they could do because it was a transaction. And and if they did their part, then God would be obligated to do his part because that's how this works. This shows up sometimes when when something happens in our lives and, and, and we're unhappy about it. We lose a job or we have a financial setback or we get sick and we go, what is God doing? I go to church. I mean, I even give a little money now and again. I'm a good person. I mow my yard. My house looks nice. I'm, I'm, I'm a decent neighbor. What we're doing is we're ticking off all of the things that we've done. We've carried out our part. So now God's obligated to carry out his part. We deserve blessing. I hate to break it to you. You deserve judgment. But God has given blessing to those who understand that it's not what we've done for him. It's what he's done for us. He's going to make that clear in verse 29. 
They said, what do we have to do to accomplish the works of God? Plural. In verse 29, Jesus is going to correct them. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, work of God that you believe in him whom, whom he has sent. In other words, the basic requirement for eternal food is not what you do. It's that you believe in the one sent to you. He turns their wrong plural into the correct singular. He said, it's not what you're commanded by God to do. It's rather what's already been accomplished by God for you. They were looking for someone to provide lunch, and he's offering to provide eternity. Looking for Jesus for all the wrong reasons, but now asking from Jesus for all the wrong reasons. One of the things in ancient Judaism, and I tried to do some research, and I couldn't track this down uh, to find its origin. I, I don't know where it started. But Jewish synagogues in, in Jesus' day had this odd teaching that when the Messiah comes, that God would reinstitute the distribution of manna, bread from heaven, that they had experienced in the wilderness. Now, I, I, honestly, I couldn't track down the, the origin of that idea because it, it's not in the Old Testament. There's no biblical prophecy related to that. In fact, it strikes me as extremely odd because by definition, the manna was in the wilderness. It was a time and a, a period of Israel's history that you do not want to repeat again. Why would you take anything from the wilderness and say, oh, now that's a sign of the golden age when the Messiah comes? I don't get that, but they had that idea. They had the idea that, that the manna would be there and that would be one of the signs of the Messiah. So they come back at Jesus with what I've called spiritual disrespect. Look at, look at what happens here in verse 30. So they said to him, what then are you doing as a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work are you performing? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, this is interesting. Jesus says it's, it's about the one that, he's, that, that God said. And they said, okay, so give us a sign. Give you a sign? You're still digesting the sign that I gave you. I mean, it was all the way back to, you know, yesterday. This is the definition of a what have you done for me lately attitude. Here's what they're, this is where the spiritual disrespect comes in. They say, well, you know, Moses provided bread every day for 40 years. I mean, what did you do? You gave us bread and fish for one meal. I mean, let's kick that in and make it a steady flow, and then we'll, we'll consider if we need to believe you. What works have you done? If you're greater than Moses, shouldn't you have works greater than Moses? Now, here's the kicker about that. John doesn't cover the first two years much of Jesus' ministry. He's going to emphasize this final year, and that's where we're finally getting into. The other three Gospels fill in those gaps that John doesn't cover. Right now, in John chapter 6, we're about two years in. There's about one year left in the public ministry of Jesus. He has been doing miracles for two years. He teaches, he heals people, lame people walk, blind people see, uh, sick people get off, get, off, get off their beds and, and run and jump and celebrate. He has been doing miracles for two solid years. And these people have the audacity to say, well, 
Well, give us something we can believe in, and then we'll, we'll, we'll be there for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you ever taken uh, a break, a, a retreat time, where you just looked back over your whole life to just let the Holy Spirit show you how God has stepped into your world time and time again? I mean, maybe it was a, an event or a series of events before you ever came to Jesus that, that, that created that moment of opportunity. Then there was that moment when Jesus introduced himself in a way that, that you finally received what he was, what, what he was presenting to you. And, and then since that time, the way that he's just walked with you, you can, it, it's an everyday thing, but there are some events that we can mark on that timeline because they're so obvious that God has done something in my life. It's a great spiritual exercise to go back and look and see if you can mark those signposts when God made himself known to you in, in real, uh, in dramatic or subtle ways. The reason that's important is because we, we often get to this place where something happens and we're like, God, what have you done for me lately? We're meant to be a people with good memories about the works of God in our lives. And yet so often we're not good. We don't have good memories. These people are disrespecting Jesus because they're suggesting that if he thinks that he's greater than Moses, he should put up or shut up. All of his previous miracles are now ignored in favor of what have you done for me lately? But then their spiritual disrespect morphs into sinful dullness. The reason I say sinful dullness is not just because they don't understand his next words, but because they choose not to understand his next words. Look at this. In, in verse 32, in verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, all right, listen up, here it comes. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. In other words, he calls them out because their argument misuses Scripture. You just assigned the, the, the honor of the manna in the wilderness. You just gave that honor to Moses when Moses himself would have said, I didn't do that. That's a God thing. You just elevated Moses to a place that even Moses wouldn't go. You refuse to see that it's God at work then and it's God at work now. Verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Oh, my. Do you see what's happened? He says, listen, whether it was manna in the wilderness under Moses or what God is doing through me in this moment, God is always about life. And he's moved from physical life in the wilderness to spiritual life for eternity. And what do they hear? Bread to make a sandwich. Lord, always Give us this bread. This is 
willful, sinful dullness because he is making himself understood and they won't understand him. Looking for Jesus for all the wrong reasons, asking for Jesus for all the wrong reasons, but now Jesus offers himself for all the right reasons. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, now I've already kicked this crowd to the bus by now, but Jesus is still patiently laying out what's true. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I can imagine a pause right there in the middle of that sentence because he is self-consciously identifying himself as God. I am the bread of life. Everything we've been talking about, you find that in me. I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have indeed seen me, and yet you do not believe. This is eternal satisfaction being denied. To believe in Jesus is to stop worrying about the continuity of supply. Think about this. There's a new phrase that I mean, it's not new, but it's kind of popularized now. Everybody uses it. It's called supply chain. Anytime you go to the grocery store and there's no Fritos, that's the supply chain problem. You go buy an appliance and they say, well, we can't deliver it for three months because it's on a ship somewhere. That's a supply chain problem. We all understand what the supply chain is. In, in economics, it means that, that there's a product that comes from the producer and there is an end use, user that wants to purchase that product, but the supply chain is the process of getting that product from where it started to, to, to where it's going to end up. What Jesus is saying is that when it comes to the life that matters for eternity, when you come to me, there is never going to be a supply chain problem. I will provide life, and it will be an unbroken life that you never have to worry about. Eternity is guaranteed in him because Jesus is the bread. What we have here is the guilt of unbelief on display. What I mean by that is when the gospel has been laid out in very plain, straightforward terms, and you say, you know, that's interesting, Maybe I'll come back another week and hear a little bit more. You don't need a 12-week series to explain to you that you have offended God because you are a sinner. You can't solve that problem in yourself. Why? Because you are a sinner. But there is one who was not a sinner, who came and made himself available to be a substitute in your place and to receive the wrath, the punishment, do your sin. And because he did that, the way is open to you to come to the bread of life and be given life that lasts from today into eternity. 
you don't need a long series to, to do that. You, you don't have a thousand questions. You may have, in, have invented a list full of objections, but the bottom line is, this is what's true. You either accept it and receive the invitation that Jesus has issued, or you play dumb. You pretend to be dull and not understand. The problem with that is there's no promise that you get another chance. They denied eternal satisfaction because he said, you've seen me, but you don't believe me. Well, he's going to put eternal salvation on display. The last four verses of this section, verse 37 and 38, he displays eternal salvation. And then in verse 39 and verse 40, he puts eternal security on on the table. I want you to get this, eternal salvation and eternal security. In verse 37, he says, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. Now, that first word, everything, in Greek is really what we call a, a, a noun with, with a, a neuter gender, which, which means it can be translated everything or it can be translated everyone. It's sort of a general term for a group. Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. What he does here is he puts salvation on display at two levels. He says the Father is going to take a mass of people who, who believe me, believe in me, and he's going to give them to me as a gift. But then, talking about this mass of people that are going to come into salvation, Jesus then zeroes in on the individual, and he says, and no one out of that mass that comes to me is ever going to be kicked to the curb. I'm not ever going to I'm not ever going to leave them behind. What he's suggesting is, if you're worried about whether you can actually be a Christian because, you know, you've got some stuff in your background, you know, could I actually be a Christian? What he's suggesting is that when the Father works in the heart of a, of, of, of a people and they come to salvation, Jesus says, I make sure every single one that the Father brings me, makes it in. Now watch how this plays out. He says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus is going to accept you because the Father is going to lead you, and Jesus will do the will of the Father. Now, look how this plays out in security. He says in verse 38 that that I've come here to do the will of him who sent me. Well, what is the will of the Father? Well, in verse 39 it says, and this is the will of him who sent me. Okay, pretty straightforward. I'm going to do his will. Well, what is that will? Well, here it is. The will of him who sent me, that of every one that he has given me, I will lose no one, but will raise him up on the last day. Then he's going to restate verse 39 in different words in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
There's a perfect balance in these verses between the tension uh, between the divine and the human aspects of salvation. It affirms the positive intention of God's will. God wants you to be saved alongside the place of human responsibility to receive the offer that is given. We don't make our own opportunity for salvation, but we have to accept the free offer when it is presented. Now, the reason verses 39 and 40 are so important is because I would say, um, I would say the number one subject that I have had for decades when people come to me for for counseling. We don't, they don't often call it counseling when they come to see me. They just say, I have a theological question. Okay. They come sit down in my office and after some polite small talk, they'll say something like this. Pastor, I'm just not sure I'm a Christian. Okay. Well, there's only two options here. Either you are or you aren't. So let's figure it out. What Jesus is telling us is that, think about this from from the terms of the Trinity. The Trinity is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is impossible for the Trinity to ever have any rivalry or disagreement within themselves. They are never at odds within the Godhead. So, when Jesus says, it's, I'm here to carry out the will of the Father, there's no way that Jesus ever has a competing will. There's no way that Jesus ever pulls in a different direction than the Father. There's no way that the Spirit ever pushes in a different direction than, than the Father and the Son. So, so what is said here is, when the Father gives people to the Son as a gift... The Son will receive every single one and guarantee that in the last day they will be resurrected so that they will have life that spans all of eternity. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, they're never at odds. They're always working towards the same goal. So if God gives the Son the Mass, Jesus sees us individually and promises that we will never be lost. What is being taught in these verses is there is not anyone or anything that can separate you from God once he has received you as an adopted member of the family, as a new citizen in the kingdom, as a part of the body of Christ. But the enemy... The enemy has a primary strategy that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And that strategy is he always questions the Word of God. In the Garden of Eden, Eve said, we're not supposed to eat this tree. And the, and the, and the enemy says, mm, did God really say that? In our, in our heads, the primary spiritual battlefield that we experience in our, is in our heads. In our heads, how many times have you started to get serious about walking with Jesus and you started reading your Bible and you started trying to be involved in church and, and the enemy goes, yeah, but, but you know, there's some stuff over here in your background. I mean, are you really 
Are you really sure that you're a Christian? Well, God said I was. Well, did he? The enemy always wants us to question the word of God. The solution is we make a decision once and for all that if God said it, you know that old, old saying, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it? That drives me crazy. Because it's out of order. God said it. That settles it. And I believe it. You see, once God has said, you belong to me, that settles it for all time. The Bible tells us that when we come to Christ, we have been purchased with a price. In other words, we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. What that means is, I don't know if you've ever bought anything, but when you buy something, guess what? You're the owner. You get to make the call on how that's used. Your neighbor doesn't get to come over and say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm taking that bicycle. No, you're not. That belongs to me. I bought it. When we've been bought with a price, it means that we no longer have the capacity to take ourselves out of the kingdom. We don't have the possibility to say, I'm no longer a part of the kingdom. Some people say, well, 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 what about people who do that? What, is, what about people who go to church for 25 years and, and then they say, I don't believe anymore, and they just leave? i give you an easy answer to that. Nowhere in here is Jesus talking about church membership. You can be a member of a church for 25 years and then leave, but you cannot leave if you're a true member of the kingdom of God because you've been bought with a price. Jesus says here, Everyone that the Father gifts to me, I will see they finish the race. That doesn't mean that you can get saved and live any way you want to. It's still our responsibility to fight temptation. It's still our responsibility to pursue holiness. It's still our responsibility to try and be like Jesus. But we're not trying to be like Jesus so that we can get into heaven. We're trying to be like Jesus because we love him so much. I had somebody tell me one time, I'm just, I'm, I'm just not ready to become a Christian because I'm just afraid of what God's going to make me do. Man, it's like saying I'm afraid to get married because she's going to want me to take out the trash occasionally. <laughs> yeah, she wants me to take out the trash, but you know what? It is worth the transaction. I don't want to become a Christian because of what God might require of me. You mean like, like helping you to become who you were created to be? You mean like making you fully who you were designed to be from the moment the thought of you came into existence? That, that's what you're afraid of? Folks, the gospel is this. You come as you are, regardless of how ugly that might be. And you leave better than you could ever hope to be. Until the day when you see Jesus as he is, because you'll be like him. He's the bread of life. And taking that bread doesn't get me 
to the next day when my appetite kicks in again. It gets me through all of eternity because the life in me never stops flowing through me. The Bread of Life discourse is going to go on for another extended time. We're going to look at it over the next two weeks. But there's enough here already for me to ask you. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how godly your grandma was. I don't care if you have all the the right credentials of being a good person. I don't care if the good outweighs the bad. What I want to know is, has God presented to you an offer to be a part of His family through the price paid by Jesus? And have you received that offer in a transformative way in your life? So back to the question that's asked in my office. Pastor, I'm just not sure if I'm a Christian. Well, let's talk about it. Have you accepted, have you received that that invitation from Jesus? He's offering the bread of life to you. But you understand what they seem to not understand. That he's not talking about sandwiches. He's talking about eternal life. Have you received that? If you have, then then the guarantee is if you've been gifted to the Son, the Son will never let you go. You can't fall from grace. You can't lose your salvation. You can make stupid choices. But because you belong to Jesus, the Spirit will discipline you. He will teach you. He will instruct you. He will bring you to wholeness because that's what the owner has determined. If you've never done that, then no, you're not a Christian. I don't care whether you use the title or not. Christian in our day and time means somebody that goes to a Christian church. But biblically speaking, it means somebody who has come into the kingdom of God by the grace that's been offered to them through Jesus Christ. There's some debate in the modern world about whether invitations at the end of church services are helpful or hurtful. Should we have an invitation and potentially put people off because they're nervous in front of a crowd? Or should we have an invitation because there's no guarantee of when the next opportunity will be offered? I'm going to fall on that side of the debate because here's the thing that you need to know. If God is speaking to you in that secret place deep in your heart right now, and you know it's Him, and He's saying, you're not with me. You can be, but you're not. Not yet then I want to invite you to come speak to one of our pastors with the promise that there's not one person in this room who will 
laugh or think badly of you for walking the aisle. Everybody here, just like the angels in heaven, will celebrate if you come to Jesus. And I also think that this is important because I can't promise you another opportunity. You have to seize the moment when it presents itself. If you accept the invitation, the Father will scoop you up and gift you to the Son who will wrap you up and say you will never be unsafe again. Come to Jesus. I know for a fact that not everybody in this room this morning is going to heaven. I also know for a fact that there is an invitation that is open to everyone in this room and you can go to heaven. But you have to respond to the invitation of the one who said, I am the bread of life. Our pastors will be right here. Our people will be rooting for you. Listen, if you're already a Christian, but you're not walking faithfully after Jesus, you also need to come down here and bend your knee and just present yourself before the throne of grace and say, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to get back in the game. I, I can't be out on the edges anymore. I need to be in the heart of things. If you're a believer but you don't have a church, come talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to explain how you can be a part of this church. There's a process, and we'll share that with you. But most of all, come to Jesus. Father, thank you so much. Your word is powerful. It is, it is an amazing thing to consider that these people in John 6 ask for bread and you offered eternal life. Father, we find ourselves often asking for the trivial when you offer us the eternal. Lord, in this moment, make yourself known. You know every single heart here that belongs to you, and you know those who do not. Do a mighty work in this place, Father. Give us the bread of life and let us live forever as the children of God. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.